Welcome to the Journey Church Houston podcast. The Journey is a church plant in Houston, Texas, inviting people on a journey to discover the truth, goodness, and beauty of the Christian story. Whether you are a skeptic, a spiritual seeker, or a committed follower of Jesus Christ, we pray this podcast engages your heart and your mind with the true claims of Christianity, why it's believable, and how it makes sense of our lives in the world. And we hope you are inspired to take your next step in your spiritual journey. In this episode, I, Mace, begin a two-part series on the journey's distinctives. Our core convictions are our beliefs about what make up the essence of Christianity, the things believed everywhere, always, and by all. Our distinctives are beliefs about which genuine Christians may disagree, but have a significant impact on the life and teaching ministry of our local church. In part one, we cover our ecclesiological distinctives, the theological distinctives regarding the order of and life in the local church. We cover topics such as the nature of the local church and its relationship to the universal church, the offices and governance of the local church, the inclusion of children in the corporate worship gathering, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and spiritual gifts like tongues and prophecy. Our goal in this series is to be clear about where we stand and to create a culture of thoughtful, charitable dialogue regarding debated and potentially controversial theological issues. Let's take a listen to part one of our series on the journey's distinctives. So we believe that the church is God's primary instrument of working in the world today. And so that's why, as we have sought to start this thing called the journey, we're not just trying to create a bunch of individuals living on mission. We're not even just trying to start a small group that's living on mission. We set out to plant a church. And that's what we've been building towards this entire last several months from the fall and the start of the year. And we're ultimately building up to this moment in a few weeks where we are going to formally covenant together as a local church, what we're calling our covenant commitment ceremony in a few weeks on March 24th, where we go from a group of believers that has been gathering together to discover what it looks like to build a church, to plant a church. We've been meeting in view of planting a church, but where we actually become a new local church community. And before we do that, we want to cover a few more topics in our remaining weeks leading up to this uh, celebratory occasion. One is, what do we mean by covenant commitment ceremony? What does membership look like at the journey? And we're going to be talking about that over the next few weeks. But specifically today and next week, we're doing a two-part series on our distinctives, what we call the journey's distinctives. If you remember back to the fall, we did a series on part of our statement of faith that we call our core convictions. And we said those are the things that have been believed everywhere, always, and by all. They're the, the core Christian beliefs that unite Christians across the world, across denominational lines, across theological traditions, across different local churches. Now we're going to cover the second main part of our statement of faith, which is our distinctives. And these are the things that do tend to differentiate one local church from another or one denomination or theological tradition from another. The way that we say it is distinctives are beliefs about which genuine Christians may disagree, but that have significant impact on the life and teaching ministry of the local church. And so these distinctives are going to give shape to much of what we uh, teach and do here at The Journey. Um, But... One thing that we want to be clear about as we're going through these distinctives is that members are not required to personally affirm these distinctives, but what we're asking members to do is if they would be willing to sit under teaching from and participate in church life in accordance with these beliefs. And we want dialogue about these issues that we're going to cover today and next week. We want that to be happening throughout our church, but we want to make sure that we're doing it charitably and with the desire to preserve unity, even among brothers and sisters that disagree. I'm fortunate to have personally experienced what this can look like. A a previous church that we were a part of, as I studied the scriptures and began to think through some of the issues that we're going to talk about, I came to land in some different places on some of these issues than the church that we were a part of. But I was still embraced. I was still not only allowed to be a member there, I was even allowed to be on staff there. And one particular moment that sticks out is there was a time where 
I was teaching a men's Bible study, and one of these issues that we're going to discuss during this series was unavoidable. And I was like, how do I handle this? Because the way I would understand this passage is different than the way our church would teach this passage. And one thing led to another. And what wound up happening was our senior pastor form, uh, moderated a discussion between me sharing my view and someone else sharing the, the other view. And our goal was to model. Uh, it wasn't a debate. We made clear, like, we're not debating. We're not necessarily trying to convince people of our view, but what we want to do is present the main views on each side and model charitable Christian dialogue between brothers and sisters in Christ that disagree on some of these distinctive secondary issues. And we got a lot of really positive feedback from that conversation. I actually really enjoyed it. I was like, man, I kind of want to go through all of our secondary beliefs and have a conversation like this because I, I, I think that that just doesn't happen enough. Stephen and I were talking about this before we got here just so often. Even if someone says they want to talk about it, it just quickly becomes defensive and argumentative. And we don't want that. We want to create a, a, a culture where these are our distinctives. These are the beliefs that are going to guide the teaching and, and operations of our church. But we want to encourage dialogue and journey together as we're studying these issues. So one of the things that you're going to notice in this series is that the pace at which we cover these beliefs is going to be way faster than we covered the, the core convictions. And part of that seems unfortunate because we're, we're going to be going through our most controversial beliefs way quicker than we did the things that we all agree on. But part of that's by design. What we're trying to show is that we want to put more weight on those core convictions, the things that we agree on, than the things that might distinguish our church from another. In other words, we want to major on the majors and minor on the minors. And so as we go through these distinctives, particularly because of how fast we're going through them, we want to be clear. Our goal in this moment, our goal in this series is not necessarily to convince you of our positions on each of these issues. Um, likely, there's not a person in this room that won't disagree with something that is, is shared. <clears throat> but we want to be clear about what we're going to teach, how we're going to operate. And our hope is, at the very least, is at the end of this series, you'll be able to say, I'm not sure if I agree with this article, but I can at least see where they're coming. And so that's our goal for this series. So with all that said, what are our distinctives? So today we're going to cover, we break down our, our distinctives into two subcategories. Today, we're going to cover what we call our ecclesiological distinctives. And that's just a fancy theological term. Um, the Greek word translated church in our New Testament is ekklesia. So when we say our ecclesiological distinctives, we mean our theological distinctives regarding the order of and life in the local church. So of all of our distinctives, these are probably the ones that you're going to experience and feel the most in the day-to-day, week-in, week-out life of our church. Um, as we'll cover in just a moment. And it starts with being more specific with what we believe about the church. So our first article in our ecclesiological distinctives that is labeled our belief on autonomy and membership in the local church. And it says, a local church is an autonomous congregation, the essence of which is its members. The congregation is responsible for church discipline through the admission and dismissal of members. Membership in the local church is the church's public affirmation of a believer's profession of faith, the mutual commitment of the congregation and the member to one another, one another, and the believer's willful submission to the elders of a particular local church. At the journey, this means that prospective members must affirm and agree to uphold the journey's core convictions and to live in accordance with the membership covenant, which we'll cover in a couple weeks. So we're going to break this down a, a little bit, just try to clarify maybe some of the, the clauses in here. So the first one talks about how we believe the local church is an autonomous congregation. In other words, as we survey the New Testament teaching, once you get past the time of the apostles, we don't see any evidence of any sort of hierarchy uh, or authority structure above the local church. So some traditions would say, you have a bishop who's in charge of overseeing several local churches. 
we'll talk more about this uh, when we get to our article on the officers of the church. But as we look at the, the New Testament, um, we see the terms overseer, elder, and pastor as being synonymous, as being interchangeable. The word overseer in Greek is the word episkopos, which is where we get the word um, bishop from. And then the word for elder in the original language is the word presbyteros. So that's where we get like the Presbyterian form of government from. And then that word, uh, presbyter, came to be the word priest. And so we see priest, bishop, overseer, elder, pastor, shepherd, all of those titles are referring to the same office. So we don't see New Testament evidence of a bishop overseeing several local congregations. Or speaking of Presbyterianism, people in the Presbyterian camp would say, well, there's not a bishop, but all the elders of the different local churches come together and they form a, an assembly that oversees all of the churches. And again, we just don't see evidence of that. They'll usually point to something like Acts 15, uh, so-called Jerusalem Council. We think if you look at that passage a little bit more per, uh, carefully, you'll see that there was, it was really two particular local churches that were having an issue. So the elders of those churches came together to resolve that issue. We don't see that as evidence of uh, an assembly that oversees several local churches. So we believe each local church is autonomous. But with that said, we absolutely do believe and want to pursue partnership with other local churches. So that's why, for example, a portion of every dollar that comes into the journey goes to the Houston Church Planning Network where we are helping fund the planting of churches across denominational lines, across theological traditions, to saturate our city with gospel preaching local churches that we might disagree with some distinctives, including some of these distinctives about what it means to, to be the, the church, but that we hold in common those core convictions. And so we want to support that. It's also a reason why the denomination that we have chosen to partner with is not a hierarchical denomination, but it's it's a coming together of other like-minded churches that voluntarily cooperate with one another for the sake of funding missionaries, theological training, and relief work. In fact, I just saw on social media the other day there was some flooding in Conroe, and so our denomination sent a team of people to help people in need. One of the the reason why that's able to happen is because churches like ours have partnered with others to support that sort of work. But we believe that that doesn't create an, a, a hierarchy structure above the local church. Now within each local church, we believe that the essence of each local church is the members. To put it concisely and simply, no members, no church. As we'll cover in greater detail in a moment, we believe a, a church should have elders, and we believe a church ideally will have deacons, but a church must have members. And the, that Christ has given the members, given the congregation itself, a particular realm of authority within the church, and that's specifically around membership. That it's the congregation that affirms the profession of faith of the prospective member and welcomes them into fellowship in the local church. And it's also the congregation that is primarily responsible for what we call church discipline. Now, some of us have some baggage with that language of church discipline, and oftentimes it's because our mind goes immediately to the last step of church discipline, which you might call excommunication, and we've maybe seen or heard of that being done very poorly. But at its essence, discipline is related to the word disciple, which means learner. So when we say the church, the congregation is primarily responsible for discipline, what we mean is that the primarily is that the members have um, authority and responsibility to help one another grow in their faith, to grow in their discipleship, to exhort one another towards Christian maturity. Now, when we, we look at passages like Matthew 18, which you see referenced there in the scripture references, we do see Jesus talk about how when you see a brother or sister in Christ who's in sin, we do have a responsibility to go to them and to call them to repentance and restoration and reconciliation. And Jesus teaches that if, if the issue is not resolved by going to that person one-on-one, -on -one, take a couple people with you. If that continues to be unresolved, then tell it to the, the church. And that um, 
we believe the elders have a role in shepherding the congregation through that process, but the authority of that church discipline process ultimately rests in the congregation itself. And so we believe church membership is a group of believers' mutual commitment to Christ and to the discipleship of one another in a way that is distinct from their commitment to other Christians. So an analogy might be that as I look at the New Testament, as I look at the teaching of Jesus, I am called to love all people. But I'm called to love my wife in a distinct way because we have made a particular commitment to one another. And we see that as analogous to the commitment that believers make to one another in the local church. And so, as I've shared before, we ask all prospective members to affirm, uphold, and promote our core convictions and commit to live in accordance with our membership covenant, which we'll cover in a couple weeks. Moving on to our next article, we've talked a little bit about this, but our next article is on the offices of the church. The officers of a local church are elders and deacons. Each local church is led under the Lordship of Christ by a plurality of qualified male elders, also called bishops or overseers or pastors. These men must live above reproach and have an ability to accurately and faithfully teach the scriptures. Pastors or elders oversee the doctrine and direction of the church. And the elders are identified and appointed by the existing elders and affirmed by the congregation. The elders are assisted by qualified men and women of godly character serving as deacons, which means servant or minister. The deacons lead the flock in serving, particularly in regard to meeting the practical and physical needs of the congregation. So perhaps the clearest text that, that we see both of these offices in is 1 Timothy 3, where Paul lists the uh, qualifications first of elders and then of deacons. And so when you look at that list of qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, for elders, he actually uses the word overseers there. But if you look at the parallel passage in Titus chapter 1, he uses the word elders. So that's one of our uh, strands of evidence that we see overseer or bishop and elder being the same office. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. And the, the terms that you'll probably hear us use most often is, is elder or pastor. And so when, when I say elder or pastor, we're, we're talking about the, the same office. And one of the primary responsibilities of the elders, of the pastors, is teaching the scriptures. As you look at that passage in 1 Timothy 3 and you compare the qualifications for an elder with the qualifications of a deacon, a lot of them are the same. All of the qualifications of a deacon have to do with character. Almost all of the qualifications of an elder have to do with character, but there's one qualification unique to the elders, which is the ability to teach. And so we understand the office of elder, pastor, overseer to have an essential teaching element to it. Then when we look at passages like Acts chapter 6, which many believe describes kind of a, a precursor to the office of deacon, the servants of the church, um, it appears that that office is, is primarily responsible for taking more care of practical and physical needs of, of the church. So one way that will look in the life of our church is that we'll have various serve teams, things like set up, tear down, or welcome team, or kids ministry. And the goal is all of those teams will ultimately be overseen by a deacon. Um, next, we believe that the scriptures in places like 1 Timothy 2, the, the chapter right before the qualifications of an elder, we see teacher Scripture teaches that the office of elder or pastor is to be limited to men as part of God's complementary roles for men and women in the life of the church. But we believe the office of deacon is open to both men and women. So when you look at 1 Timothy 3, the qualifications of a deacon, there's a, a phrase in there that some translations say, it'll say their wives. We think a more accurate translation in that passage, it could mean that, but we think a more accurate translation in that passage is the women. And so Paul is saying women deacons as well. And then we see in first, not first, uh, when we see Romans 16.1, we see Phoebe um, explicitly called a deacon. And virtually the unanimous testimony of early church history after the, the time of the apostles is that both men and women who were qualified were ordained to the office of deacon. Now we're going to move on to one of the distinctive elements of our weekly 
worship gatherings that will be seen and heard, quite literally, is the joyful inclusion of children in our worship gatherings. And so our statement says this, the centerpiece of the Christian life in the local church is the worship gathering on the Lord's Day, allowing children to witness their parents' model of worship and devotion and allowing them access to the means of grace present in the gathering are essential means of evangelizing and discipling our children. Therefore, while we will offer age-based activities outside of the worship gathering, we joyfully include children in our worship service. So it's been said that the Christian life is more caught than taught. And so we believe that one of the most important and impactful ways that we can evangelize and disciple our children is to welcome them into our worship gatherings with us. It doesn't mean that we won't have other age-based ministry environments. Once we launch discipleship classes, we, we will have kids' classes, but we want during that worship hour for families to be able to worship together. Um, that comes first and foremost from Scripture. That seems to be the Old Testament precedent, as you can see in some of the passages we have listed here. And then in the New Testament, we see places like in Ephesians and Colossians, Paul gives direct commands to children. And so it seems to be that he assumed that children would be there in the gathering as his letter was being read. Add to the scriptural testimony, we see that while um, practices in the contemporary American evangelical church have been changing, still by far the majority practice in the church today, certainly around the world and certainly throughout history, is um, all people, young and old, worshiping together. Add to that um, sociological research, that they're doing studies on the young people that grow up in the church that keep their faith into adulthood. What are some of the, the commonalities that we're seeing? And some of the things that the research has shown that contributes to young people keeping their faith into adulthood is inclusion in the broader life of the church and relationships with believers across generations. And we think that one of the ways that we can do that, and perhaps the most important way, is include them in the most central element of church life together, which is the weekly corporate worship gathering. And finally, we believe that this practice best expresses what we mean the church is. As I've, I've mentioned, the Greek word that we translate church is ekklesia, and it literally means assembly. And so we want every believer within the local church to be assembled together. That includes not only children that have professed faith in Christ to be able to be part of the gathering, but we also don't want to take away adults that would be serving in those kids' environments away from the worship gathering. Again, we, <clears throat> we're more than happy to have a discipleship class hour where we can have age-based ministry and we want adults investing in the lives of our, our children. Um, but we don't want to have to take them away from the worship gathering to be able to do that. Now, someone might say, well, can't you solve that problem by just having two services? And you can have, you know, someone serve in the kids service, one service and attend the worship gathering, the other one. And that would be true. But we also believe that that would be going against what we believe that word ecclesia ultimately to mean, because in essence, to have two services is to have two gatherings. It's it's functionally creating two assemblies, two churches. And so we want everybody to be able to assemble and worship together at the same time. Now, with that said, we understand that this comes with practical challenges. You know, you'll hear people say, well, won't the preaching and stuff be over their heads? And to some degree, yeah, it will be. But we talk over our kids' heads all the time. If we waited to talk to Jude until he understood every word that we said, he would never understood a word we say. And second, um, again, while we will have certain age-based environments where we will um, tailor the teaching and, and other things directly at the children, but third, our worship services, including our, our sermons, will be designed with the understanding that there are children present in the room. Um, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, in my experience, children are able to absorb and retain much more than we tend to give them credit for. Another common uh, challenge to this practice is people will say, well, won't children be a distraction to their parents from worship? And I think that question suffers from 
an insufficient view of what worship is. That we believe that a parent tending to the needs of his or her child during the gathering, such as nursing them and putting them down for a nap, is as much an act of worship as singing a song or listening to a sermon. Okay, well, that's the parents, but won't it distract others? And what we hope to do is create a church culture where there's grace and there's patience extended to the littlest among us and to their stressed out and tired parents. And we would hope to build a culture where those of us who don't have young children in our, our homes to take care of, whether it's a young professional or an empty nester, that they see it as part of their joy and their service to the church that I'm going to make a point to sit in the same pew as that young family so I can be another helping hand. Um, say, for example, totally hypothetical, if that fam the dad of that family is up preaching, right? And so uh, last thing I'll say to this effect is we are thinking of what it might look like to have some maybe some open space in the back of the room or in the side of the room for those that need to just get some wiggles out um, can do so, but in a way that doesn't remove them from the gathering, allows them and those taking care of them to still participate to the greatest degree um, possible. Um, so we believe at the end of the day, despite the potential challenges, that it's worth it. John Piper writes, worshiping together counters the contemporary fragmentation of families. Hectic American lives leave little time for significant togetherness. It is hard to overestimate the good influences of families doing valuable things together week in and week out, year in and year out. Worship is the most valuable thing a human can do. And so last thing I'll, I'll share uh, uh, you can tell this is the former band director of me. I said last thing like multiple times. Um, I will share that as we have started building this practice into our own family's lives and, and including our own children in our, our worship times with our, our local church, those have been some of my favorite times as a dad. Whether it's, it's holding my daughter as we're singing a song or, or putting an arm around my son as we're listening to the sermon or what happened just last week at the awakened prayer gathering. For those that weren't able to be there, there was a time during this prayer gathering where it was kind of open mic for people to share prayer requests. And um, one particularly heart-wrenching prayer request was about a little four-year-old boy named Parker who had been recently diagnosed with leukemia. And I look next to me at Bernard, and he opened up the calendar app on his tablet, and he put in a daily event reminder to pray for Parker every day. Had we not included Bernard in that moment, I would have missed out on seeing evidence of God's work in his life. And so we hope to create hundreds of fond memories like the one I just shared with our family and the other families that come together to worship. Also central to the life in our church will be the practices of the ordinances. The two ordinances of the church are baptism, the new covenant initiation ceremony, and the Lord's Supper, the new covenant renewal ceremony. Both ordinances are visible signs in the life of the local church, which correspond to invisible realities in the universal body of Christ. Baptism is the immersion in water as a visual sign of a believer's participation in the gospel, whereby a repentant sinner professes faith in and allegiance to Christ public identification with a local body of believers, and dedication to grow in godliness in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Likewise, in baptism, the church affirms the baptismal candidate's faith, welcomes him into the church fellowship, and pledges to assist the new believer and or church member along to spiritual maturity. We invite all who have placed their faith in Christ, who have not yet been baptized upon the profession of faith, to take this joyful step of faith. The Lord's Supper is the partaking of bread and the cup in the local church as of the local church gathered together for the purpose of remembering Christ's sacrifice, anticipating his return, and recommitting themselves in obedience and faith to Christ to be observed each week. All who have faith in Christ and are not subject to church discipline are invited to participate in the Lord's Supper during Sunday gatherings of the church. And so the ordinances are these practices of baptism and the Lord's Supper that the church has observed since day one. We 
call them ordinances because they were commanded and instituted by Christ. Some churches and traditions will refer to these as sacraments, and we don't have a hard line against using that terminology, but we tend to favor the term ordinances because it explains that we observe these practices out of obedience to Christ. So the first ordinance is baptism. And as we survey the New Testament teaching on uh, baptism, there are certain beliefs that we would hold in common with believers of all historic Christian traditions. That would include the use of water, that it's to be done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and that it is a rite intended to visibly identify one as a member of the new covenant community, the, the church. But baptism is also a practice that has been debated since some of the earliest centuries of the church, specifically in regards to who should be baptized. So some traditions look at the Old Testament practice of um, circumcising young uh, baby boys as a, a symbol of their inclusion in the covenant community. Um, so they would say in the New, new Covenant, we should baptize all children, including infants, of believing parents. So this would be a practice called infant baptism or sometimes called paedo-baptism. And the, the major problem we see with that particular view is that while membership in the Old Covenant community was by lineage primarily, membership in the New Covenant community is by faith. And so we believe that it is only those who have professed faith in Christ who should be baptized. Our position is known as believer baptism or credo baptism. And believer baptism is the only form of baptism that we are going to practice at the journey. Because when we look at the New Testament, we think that there's a clear pattern of faith in Christ and then baptism. And so a passage we've looked at multiple times, the Great Commission, Jesus says, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we think that that order is not coincidental. We think it's instructive that we make disciples. We preach the gospel and invite people to repent and believe the gospel. And then we baptize them. And then when we look at the beginning of the church in the book of Acts, at, at Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he calls the crowd to repent and be baptized. And then later the, the text says that those who received his word, i.e. those who believed, were baptized. And so we believe that ideally baptism would be the first act of obedience, as it's often called, of the new believer. Bobby Jameson has written some really helpful uh, works on the ordinances. And in one place he writes, After trusting in Christ, baptism is the first thing faith does. It's how faith shows itself before God, the church, and the world. Baptism is where faith goes public. And so we believe baptism visibly marks one's entry into the body of Christ. And so we will ask all prospective members as part of the membership interview process, which we'll cover in greater detail at another time, but we will ask all prospective members whether or not they have been baptized upon a profession of faith. Um, and if they have not, for one reason or another, that's we will ask them to um, joyfully take that step of faith as, as part of our joining our church. And in fact, we would hope that um, if there's anybody that's a part of our membership uh, or our mission team, when we have that covenant commitment ceremony, ceremony on March 24th, if there's anybody that has not taken that step that is ready to take that step, we hope that that would be part of that celebration that day is getting to, to see people publicly profess their faith in baptism. Now, with all of that said, we recognize that this specific view of baptism is not in our core convictions, which is what we've said is required for membership at our, our church. And so for the sake of keeping the core convictions primary and for the sake of unity with our genuine brothers and sisters in Christ who uphold those core convictions but disagree about baptism, um, there may be exceptions to that, the, that norm, that practice but the elders and pastors will take those on a case-by-case -case basis. So, um, for example, um, we would want to make clear that even among those that practice pedo-baptism, there's different understandings of what's going on there, and we would want to make sure that that person still does truly align with our core convictions, especially regarding what the gospel is and what it is that saves us from sin. So there are some traditions that believe that baptism actually cleanses one from sin, 
and that it's necessary for salvation. However, we believe that the New Testament is clear that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, apart, apart from works, which would include baptism. And instead, we believe that baptism is a joyful profession, that salvation has already occurred by grace through faith and is based on the finished work of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So that's what we believe about baptism. The second ordinance is the Lord's Supper, which was instituted by Jesus at the Last Supper with his disciples. And in the Lord's Supper, we eat bread, representing Christ's body broken for us on the cross. And we drink either wine or grapefruit, fruit, grapefruit, grape juice, there we go, wine or grape juice, representing Christ's blood shed for us on the cross. And we believe that observing the Lord's Supper is a corporate celebration and commemoration of Christ's sacrifice on the cross and our union with him and with the body of Christ. And so when we gather together as a church to partake of the Lord's Supper, we're reminding ourselves of our union with him and with one another. And it's also anticipation of his return when we will dine with him in his kingdom. So we believe that similar to baptism, by partaking of the Lord's Supper, the believer is visually recommitting himself to a life of obedience to Christ in front of his or her brothers and sisters in the church. And we believe it's ideally to be practiced every week during the worship gathering because that's the, the clear, consistent practice of the early church. And so we think that that's one that should be continued. Unlike some other Christian traditions, we don't believe that the elements of the Lord's Supper are literally the, the flesh and, and blood of Christ that are then re-sacrificed each week. That we believe that because of Jesus' perfect divine nature, his one-time sacrifice was sufficient for all time. The author of Hebrews contrasts Jesus' priesthood and sacrifice with those of the old covenant system when he writes, he, speaking of Jesus, has no need like those high priests, talking about the old covenant high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. And so therefore we invite all of those who have been united with Christ's body on the cross in this one-time sacrifice through faith to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. Anyone who has professed faith in Christ is welcome to the table during our services. Normatively, we would ask that one's faith be publicly professed and affirmed through baptism and membership in a gospel-preaching local church. Um, but, once again, we recognize there are those that hold to our core convictions but have disagreements regarding the ordinances that are genuine members of the, the universal body of Christ. And so, ultimately, we believe the table is open to all believers. Um, but it is for believers that we believe that Jesus, this is a practice that Jesus specifically gave to believers, to his followers. And so we would politely ask those who have not yet professed faith in Christ to withhold um, from partaking with no sense of shame or judgment from us. Finally, we believe that that final form of church discipline that Jesus was talking, talking about in Matthew 18, at the very least, means withholding admittance to the table as a, a form of solemn exhortation to the one under discipline to repent and be reconciled and restored to membership in good standing. But all who have professed faith in Christ, ideally all who have also been baptized and are members in good standing of a gospel-preaching church, are invited to partake of the supper with us. And finally, for today, if we have not covered enough controversial topics yet, if I have not offended everyone in the room yet in one way, shape, or form, uh, it is our topic or is our article on the spiritual gifts. All believers are given gifts by the Holy Spirit to be used for the building up of the body of Christ. Certain gifts, the miraculous so-called sign gifts, including speaking in tongues and prophecy, have been subject to confusion and controversy since the early church. Speaking in tongues, which is human languages previously unknown to the speaker, prophecy, which is infallible, verbal, propositional revelation, and performing miracles like healing seem to be especially prevalent during the apostolic era, the foundational generation of the church, and used to confirm the apostles' and prophets' authority and message. God does still perform miracles, and Christians should not have any hesitation to pray to that end, 
However, the primary priority for believers in this era should be studying and appreciating the inspired, sufficient, and authoritative scriptures that have been passed down for us. So all believers are given gifts to, for the building up of the body of Christ. That is without question. But there are certain gifts that are periodically cause confusion and controversy within the church since some of its earliest days. One of these gifts is the gift of speaking in tongues. This gift first appears in the New Testament at Pentecost in Acts 2, at the birth of the church. And in that scene, diaspora Jews from around the world are gathered in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and the Holy Spirit falls upon the disciples, and they began to speak in other tongues, is the way the, uh, the passage puts it. Now, tongues simply means languages. We still use this as a, a figure of speech today, that if we say someone was speaking in their native tongue, we simply mean that they were speaking in their first language, the language from their homeland. Now, at Pentecost, the, the disciples begin speaking in tongues, and what's interesting and informative for us is that all of these Jews from around the world were amazed at this because each one heard them speaking in their own language. And so we believe that it's clear in Acts 2 that the gift of tongues is the spirit-empowered ability to speak a human language previously unknown to the speaker. And we see no evidence in the New Testament that the gift of tongues ever has any other meaning when it's referenced. One of the other primary passages speaking of tongues comes from 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14. And one of the verses sometimes people will that hold other beliefs on tongues will appeal, appeal to is 1 Corinthians 13, 1, where Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a, a clanging cymbal. But we believe that when Paul is speaking of, uh, when Paul is writing of speaking the tongues of angels, that he's using hyperbole for rhetorical effect. The other controversial gift is prophecy. At one extreme, there are those who claim to speak for God, but then speak and teach contrary to the revealed word in the scriptures. And throughout the Bible, God's people are commanded to test prophets. And one of the primary tests of the prophet is whether or not what they have to say lines up with scripture. So if someone comes along and says that an angel spoke to him and told him to write down what he heard in the form of additional revelation or scriptures, but then he goes on to say things like Jesus was just a prophet or that the son of God is not eternal, that he was the first and greatest creation of God. Or if that person claims that salvation is by works and not by grace alone, through faith alone and Christ alone, scripture would call that person a false prophet, regardless of what that person claims. On the more tamer end of the spectrum and within Christian orthodoxy, there are those that would claim the New Testament gift of prophecy is different from Old Testament prophecy. But again, we see no biblical base for, basis for this. We think the most natural way to read the words prophet and prophecy in the New Testament is to read them to mean the same thing that they did in the Old Testament, which would mean that prophecy is infallible, verbal, propositional revelation, and that the prophet is the one who speaks such revelation. Furthermore, we believe the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and other miraculous gifts were given for a purpose, and that purpose is primarily uh, intended for the establishment of the church. As you look through the New Testament, we only ever explicitly see apostles or those given direct authority by the apostles performing miracles. And scripture references the purposes of these miracles being to affirm the apostles' message and authority, particularly to the nation of Israel. Additionally, we have to remember that the earliest generations of believers did not have access to a complete Bible the way that we do today. The way New Testament scholar and professor at Southern Seminary, Thomas Schreiner, puts it, he says, the early church didn't have the complete canon of Scripture for some time, and hence an authoritative and infallible prophetic ministry was needed to lay the foundation for the church in those early days. And that language of, of prophets laying the foundation of the church comes explicitly from Scripture. When Paul writes to the Ephesians, he writes in Ephesians 2.20, 
that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, when do you pour the foundation? At the beginning. You don't keep pouring it and pouring it. You set the foundation, and then you build the rest of the structure on that foundation. And almost everybody across um, Christian orthodoxy believes that the office of apostle was temporary. And so we believe the most natural understanding of this verse is to see the office of prophet being likewise temporary. Paul explicitly says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8, that prophecies would pass away and that tongues will cease. Now, there's debate about when exactly that will happen, but when we look at the evidence of Scripture, we think that most likely happened within a generation or two of the apostles and that this is corroborated in, in church history. You have several early church figures like John Chrysostom and Augustine making statements about the miraculous gifts fading away. And we believe that what many in the church today would claim to be the practice of speaking in tongues or claim to be the practice of, of New Testament prophecy, um, we would respectfully contend that those don't fit the biblical description of these gifts or the proper practice of them. Um, now, to be clear, we absolutely believe that God can and does perform miracles. Every time a sinner repents, that is a miracle that the scripture says is worth joyfully celebrating in heaven. And he even miraculously still heals people. For those who don't know, our daughter Haven was diagnosed with bacterial meningitis at 10 days old. She spent 18 days in the hospital, six of those in the ICU on the brink of death at one point. But not only did she survive, as all of you have seen, she is thriving. And so we mean it when we call Haven our walking, talking miracle. And I even believe that that miracle was likely in response to the prayers of hundreds, if not thousands of believers crying out to God on her behalf. But we suspect that what is not normal, normative for our day is that someone walking around with the gift of healing that can heal someone on command with authority the way that we see Jesus and the apostles do. So while God can and does still perform miracles in our day, and we should pray regularly and fervently to that end, we believe that the primary task of believers today is to study and appreciate the inspired, sufficient, and authoritative scriptures that have been passed down to us. Our focus should be on learning, being transformed by, and contending for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So let me close with two calls to action. <clears throat> First, this lesson has undoubtedly raised some questions for you. Maybe you hold a different view than one that you heard articulated this evening. Um, or maybe you didn't even realize that one of the issues we covered today was a thing or that it was controversial. Um, or maybe it's one that you just really haven't done any study on. And so our first call to action would be to pick a topic that you you heard about tonight and, and do a deep, deep dive on it and, and study what you believe the scripture teaches for yourself. So first and foremost, that includes searching the scriptures, find and study the, the relevant scriptures. Um, as I mentioned, uh, while it's by design, it is somewhat unfair that we're covering these topics so quickly. Um, many of the beliefs that were articulated tonight um, and the ones that will be articulated next week are ones that took me weeks, months, or even years to come to. So hopefully tonight inspires you to go on this journey for yourself, looking at some of the relevant scriptures. If you're not sure where to start, all of these articles have supporting scriptures, or at least scriptures that we believe support our, our beliefs. You know, start with those and then go from there. Or find um, resources that present and argue for various views. If you're not sure where to start there, um, Zondervan, has a series of books called Counterpoints where they take several of these controversial and debated theological issues and they will get authors from a variety of perspectives to, to make a case for their view and respond to the other uh, contributors to that uh, edition or that volume. And then finally, if you're not sure where to, to start as you're trying to study some of these issues, just come talk to Stephen or me and, and ask for some recommended resources on that topic. And we have something in particular that we think might be helpful in addition to what we've already mentioned. We'd love to commend those to you. And that leads me to my second call to action, which is 
If there's any of these topics that we covered tonight or any of the topics that we cover next week that you have questions about or concerns about, we want you to talk to us. And in fact, um, as part of our prospective member interview process that, again, we will talk more about in the coming weeks, one of the things that we will want to discuss with you is that is there anything in our statement of faith that you have questions or concerns about, including our um, doctrinal dis distinctives. And so we want to be a biblical and thoughtful church. We want to be a church that encourages dialogue on these issues, no matter how controversial or difficult they are. And we want to create a culture of charity and grace where we can all respectfully pursue truth together. And there's no better time to start that than right now. Now, after spending the last 45 minutes or so talking about what makes the journey theologically distinct from some of our other sister churches in our city and around the world, we want to close by reminding ourselves and proclaiming what we all agree on, what has been believed everywhere, always, and by all. And to do that, we want to recite the Nicene Creed together. This is a, a statement of belief that was penned in 325 AD and then amended in 381 AD by pastors from around the known world in the wake of some theological controversies in their day that were threatening the church. And so they came together to articulate the Orthodox Christian faith. And so these are those beliefs that we hold most dear. These are the ones that unite us with our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout history and around the world. So would you stand with me as we recite the Nicene Creed together? I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the Father before all ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, of one essence with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for, and for our salvation came down from heaven, was incarnate of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and became man. And he was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate, and suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures. And he ascended into heaven, and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Journey Church Houston podcast. For more resources and to connect with us, including to learn how you can be a part of the journey, visit thejourneyhouston.org.